Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. Where to start with an introduction to Professor John Fraser? He's many things. An actor who once trod the boards with the likes of Daniel Craig and Helen Mirren. And a failed footballer who still thinks he can teach younger players a lesson. But there's this. An intensive care medicine specialist who runs the ICU at St Andrew's War Memorial Hospital in Brisbane. A medical researcher and a driving force behind the cutting-edge critical care research group based at the Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane. And at the top of his list, a father of five. That all suggests John doesn't have a lot of spare time. But then two years ago, along came COVID-19, which sent the worlds of intensive care medicine and medical research into a spin. There were no research papers, medical journals or proven data to help. So John and his critical care research group got busy and began linking intensive care specialists from countries experiencing the first cases of COVID. They formed COVID Critical, which enabled specialists to swap insights, data and anecdotes from this new virus via regular video calls. John assured his team that it would only involve intensive care specialists from a few countries. It's now up to 55 countries with hundreds joining to discuss live COVID learnings. This is one huge task of audience engagement and in the rarest of circumstances. My name is Michael Crutcher. Welcome to this edition of Sourced. Well, the Sourced podcast is on the road for this edition. We're in the offices of the Critical Care Research Group, which is in the Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane. And we've been very fortunate to get some time in the jam-packed diary of Professor John Fraser. John, thanks so much for joining us at this busy time. Describe for people who don't understand it, the life of an intensive care specialist. Is there an easy description for what the role entails and what's it like being in a job that has such a high level of intensity? Um, I think it's a great privilege. I'm fortunate that I'm not an accountant, sorry. Uh, you know, I can't think of anything worse than going in to work day after day knowing exactly what you're going to do next. In intensive care, you can have a really quiet morning. It might be really quite benign seeing some post-operative people, you know, exactly what's going on. You've created a pathway and roughly they will stick to it. And a lot of the relatively simple intensive care patients, you're a bit like playing a pinball machine. You know, the, the patient comes out the out the shooter and then your job is to just keep them on the straight line and make sure they come out of intensive care. And then suddenly out of nowhere, you're going to get something, number one, that you don't know what's happening initially. No one else knows what's happening. They've been through three or four other really good doctors in the system and they've phoned and said, help, we don't know what's going on. And then it's your job, I guess, to resuscitate, investigate and create definitive management whilst getting the team of other people around you, the other specialists, whether it's a cardiac surgeon or a cardiologist or a radiologist, to basically you take control of the ship and you say, you know, we're all as important as each other, 
but your job is to gear is to steer that ship on one way using all the brilliant skills that you've got arranged in a hospital. So uh, I like it because it's challenging because it's diverse. Um, but yes, it is high stress. You've spoken about needing to be good at communication in ICU. What about those times when you've had to give bad news to people? That's got to be one of the toughest communication jobs. How do you go about doing that? Um, look, when I went through, there was no communication course. Uh, there is now. I think for me it was probably a bit easier um, because my dad was ventilated in intensive care. Um, I'm the youngest of three. Uh, and to give you an idea around Christmas, to give you an idea of my position in my family, uh, I'm the youngest of three. My sister's an artist, so when it was... Uh, time to put up the Christmas tree. My sister would pick the Christmas tree, do the decorations, make it all lovely. My brother was allowed to do the lifting. He'd make the mince pies. And the little slightly odd son was sent outside to wash bricks that were put around the base of the Christmas tree. So I was, my only job that my mother ever allowed me to do was wash bricks to keep the Christmas tree up. So I wasn't that well regarded. Uh, this slightly odd kid that played with the stones. Um... And then suddenly when my dad got sick, my brother's a GP, uh, my sister kind of runs the family. But, um, uh, we we ventilated dad and I got him into intensive care, but it looked like he was going to die. Um, so suddenly um, the, the, the sensible ones in the family exited stage left. And it was my job to tell my dad, who was wide awake and conscious, but with a breathing tube, so he, he couldn't speak. And I got sent in, everyone else shot through. And I said, listen, Dad, things aren't going well. And he nodded. I said, you don't, you've smoked your lungs. You've smoked for Scotland for 40 years. Your lungs are kind of buggered. Nodded. I said, so. And he points to the breathing tube. And I said, um, I don't think we can get you better. So he points to the breathing tube again. It's very frustrating to not be able to talk. And I said, look, I think what we're going to do is we're going to have to take the breathing tube out. And when we do take the breathing tube out, your lungs won't cope. So we will take the breathing tube out. And I can sit here with you and your oxygen level will go down, your carbon dioxide level will go up and uh, you'll eventually pass away. But we can make sure that you're comfortable and you're not feeling it. Um, which, you know, sounds really tough saying it. I was, I was crying like a baby telling my dad. And uh, my dad just looked at me, you know, the, his, his baby son that was really only allowed to clean bricks. And he just, uh, he just kind of clicked his fingers and then... You know, wiggled his finger, pointing upwards to heaven, as though, oh, well, there you go, I'm going to die and go to heaven. And I still remember kind of, you cocky bastard, who says you're not going to hell? <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, if you've seen it from the other side of the coin, uh, you know what, I, I, so I always try to remember what I felt like at that time. And a, a, a colleague of mine in uh, Scotland, Dr. John Curry, said to me once that the way to practice medicine was my dad medicine. I, I went looking up a book on my dad. It must be some acronym for something. Other. He said, he said, no, you're an idiot. He said, it's my dad medicine. What would you do if it was your dad? That's how you treat people. Now, you're clever enough. You know the books. Away you go, son. So I do try and do my dad medicine. What would I want um, if that was my mum or my, or my dad? And how tough is it in practice, though? Yeah, it's hard. You can come home. You... you you know, a lot of deaths in intensive care are managed, um, so we're in control, but sometimes there's things that you just don't see coming. Um, and if it's a young person, you know, or, you know, 
a, a mum to be or a, or someone that's just about to have a kid, a dad, or um, so it can be very very difficult. I think the key thing is the key thing to communication is not talking, it's listening. And my old boss, John McCarthy, used to say to me that you can learn so much more from the patient than you'll ever teach a patient. You know, as a, ju- as a junior doctor, I thought, this man's silly. I'm, I'm really clever. I can do all this. But I, I frequently try to sit down and talk to patients. Little old men and old ladies, they look frail. They look, you know, um, very vulnerable in a hospital gown that always shows your bum. And then you just, you know, if you've got time, and some time can be uh, our biggest enemy, I make the juniors and me sit down and say, tell us about yourself. I did it the other week. Tell us about yourself and this man. I can't remember what he's in for, but lovely old fella. How are you doing? Yeah, fine, doc. Any problems? Yep, no, it's all good. What did you do as a youngster? I was in the army. I said, oh, okay, you're, you're quite, he was quite deaf, so we were having to talk loudly. I said, you know, how did you lose your hearing? And he had been in one of the islands near Japan to bring in the planes uh, that were bombing Japan. And um, so an absolutely key role when he said, oh, I just I lost my hearing because there were so many um, planes coming in, going through and past you, that his hearing just went, entirely went. And, he'd, you know, he'd be on the landing strip and they'd be getting bombed, but he had to bring them in, otherwise they'd crash. So, and I'm you know, getting goosebumps telling that story. That happens all the time. If you sit and listen long enough to people, they've got an amazing story that sometimes, you know, if you don't, take the time to listen to them that you will then so so I think communicating the way you, I don't know if I do it well uh, you listen to people and you listen to what they think first and then at least you you can understand which road they're on and then you can go along that road with them and if you do lose someone who you've got to know how tough is it to move on from that to work with another patient who needs your help how, how difficult is that part of the job um, it is difficult. I think you learn to do it because there's two bits. You do get attached to patients, absolutely, and their families and their stories. Uh, and it does hurt. It definitely hurts. And when it stops hurting, you should probably get out of medicine. But the patient in bed two deserves the same patient care that the patient in bed one gets. So you have to kind of go take a breath, maybe go for a cup of tea, and then walk back in because the next patient you have to treat like your dad as well. John, you mentioned earlier that you love the fact that there's no day the same working as an intensive care specialist. Everything's different when you come in for a new day. But then along comes COVID-19. So how did ICU work change when COVID came along? I think the thing that was different with COVID was was it was just unknown. We didn't know... Um, what was really going to happen and we didn't have a textbook there was nothing written about it And one of the things I said before was listening to our colleagues across the world that were actually facing this it's a little bit like having your mum, your dad in the back of the car and you're blindfolded and you're driving 120 kilometres and you're kind of going by feel Um, and we saw that we saw that um, at the start the mortality in intensive care because we hadn't seen this virus before, and it affects lungs differently from flu viruses. It affects kidneys differently from flu. There's some similarities, but a lot of differences. So even before vaccines and steroids came along, the mortality in intensive care due to COVID was really high. And then over the next three or four months, it started to diminish. And that's the power of learning of the doctors, nurses, and allied health in those units. So you can actually see the, just the experiential learning 
was improving the outcomes even before vaccines. Again, I'm, I'm not at all... Yeah, the, the, peop- the, the, the heroes here are the people in the, the countries that have been faced by this. But we've had... Uh, you know, these are people that have been in a mask um, for 14 hours. They've gone to work when their family members have died the day before. Um, doesn't matter how unwell some of them have felt. If they've been COVID, they've got to stay away. But a lot of the time they're going in feeling way under the weather. But there's no one else to look after the intensive care. So... It's one of those things you can't just duck, you can't just take the day off. So do you remember some of the approaches in different countries at the time? Because it seemed as though there were strict lockdowns in one place. Some countries didn't have lockdowns. But what are your recollections of those early days and the different tactics that were adopted? To quote Rumsfeld, there's so many unknown unknowns. Uh, that we didn't know what to do. Uh, we didn't know, was it going to just be a flu? Was it going to be something nice and simple? Or was it go away? We could see at that time it was um, COVID created the biggest financial upset since way bigger than the dot-com, way bigger than the 9-11. So the question was, if we let this go, what will happen? Numerous countries had talked about it. Uh, I think some of the Baltics and the Scandinavian countries had tried it. And some of the countries like ourselves locked down. So I guess what was happening was really a big social experiment. No one was quite certain uh, what was happening. What we have seen subsequent to that was the Scandinavian countries that did do it um, and let it run rampant. Uh, not only had a higher mortality than many of the countries, but they are also their economy was hurt harder than the countries like ourselves that didn't that didn't let it run rampant. So I think again. It's not a criticism, it was a social experiment, but I think what we've done here in Australia, and particularly in Queensland, at least until now, has been spot on. You know, finance is great, but you can't spend money when you're dead. Uh, so I think being alive is one of those things that comes even ahead of the mighty dollar. So what was John Fraser and the crew at the Critical Care Research Group doing at that time? Yeah, John Fraser and, the, and my team here that set up, Gianluigi Labassi and Jackie Swain, were preparing for Christmas in December 2019. Uh, we were organising a holiday for Bali and getting the kids swim shirts, etc. We actually had a member of our team, a big international team here at Critical Care Research. So we had a fellow, Alex, a cardiac surgeon from Wuhan, based here in the lab. I'd never heard of Wuhan, so I was chatting to him about it. Uh, we had a large number of people from Korea, um, from Japan uh, and many from in Milan and Lombardy. So it was actually Alex and his mates talked to us in early January. We'd actually, as president of the Asia-Pacific region, we'd said, look, the next flu that comes along, we should analyse it. We could see why some people get the influenza and they you know, take paracetamol and watch Netflix for a couple of days and why some people with influenza um, uh, end up in our intensive care like they did with swine flu. Um, so once this little things started happening in Wuhan. Alex told us about it. And then as the president of the Asia-Pacific region, I started getting phone calls saying, hey, what do we do? How, 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 do we, how do we ventilate these people? A lot of them are going into renal failure. A lot of them are waking up confused. What's the goal? Can you tell us what to do? And I said, no, I've not seen the virus. I've not seen this condition, but it does sound a bit weird. Um, what about try this, this, this? And then the phone calls and the WhatsApp messages just started rolling in through the night. And it became clear that this was going to be something different. So we wanted to be able to help. We weren't actually doing any COVID work ourselves, and I still haven't. Um, Great credit to our public health people and the fact we're a very large island with a very big moat around us. But we said, well, we can try and help you by gathering data. 
um, because you know it's at that point it was three or four countries. We thought it was manageable. We had a committee already established for, through my presidency. Um, we told Jackie Swain, our, our colleague, Jackie's the organised one, myself and Jan Luigi are a bit, li- bit like children in the Willy Wonka factory. Oh, that's a great idea. Here's another great idea. Let's do another great idea. Jackie's pretty organised. And he said, look, four countries is the maximum. We can't do anything more than four countries. He said, Jackie, hand on heart. It'll only go to four countries. You'll be fine. Um, so we're now at 54 countries. So Jackie's away. <laughs> Jackie's away on a well-earned holiday. Um, so we said, look, we'll try and bring your data together. Um uh, having data is power, but having people to analyse it is the most powerful thing. So, again, the way we saw it was each individual patient that was getting this Wuhan virus, as we called it at that time, was um, a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that was unknown. We didn't know what the picture was. Um, and, you know, um, in isolation, there's no use. There's just a tiny little bit of data. But if you bring it all together, you suddenly can create a picture. So now what we've managed to do is bring 35 million data pieces together. So it's a really big jigsaw. Uh, and that's roughly what we've been doing for the last 18 or 19 months, bringing it together, working with our colleagues, speaking to them each week uh, at the start. And then each month now, everyone was just exhausted. We thought it was going to be a sprint. We hoped it would be over by April or May. Got it completely wrong. And uh, so we went at the sprint speed, and we're still kind of going at the sprint speed. It's just it's been going for 18 months. So this podcast is about the art of engaging audiences and Mm. how you work with people to get messages across. I mean, this for you was a fits that bill completely. You brought together intensive care specialists and others, as you said, from 54 countries. Can you talk about the project itself? Was it challenging? Was it just something that you mentioned it started and it, and it moved into a different level? How did you go about this whole thing? So, so there's, a, there's a great phrase being used about me by the hospital. He said, oh, the way the way that Fraser's planned this group, not COVID, but our critical care research group that we established 14 years ago, he said he's it's been developed on an organic basis. Now. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. So. <laughs> I think in Glaswegian, the way we say organic is more ass than class. Uh, and this was definitely what happened here. There was no substantial plan of making a 54 country, 380 hospital, world's first 15. What we saw was a need. We saw friends that were good at doctors. They were good fun. They were good collaborators. And they needed help. And we had the luxury of being in Brisbane uh, without a pressure of a disease. We weren't doing 36, 48 hours. We weren't being locked out of our houses. So we just said, well, how can we best help? We couldn't do anything clinically. But we know that doctors learn by experience. And we we read the books and we read the textbooks. But if there's no books and there's no textbooks, then that doctor or that nurse or that allied health person bases it on the last two or three patients, which is okay. And maybe they'll text their friend who's maybe got another two or three patients. That's also okay, but it's still not great. So we thought, if we can do this... So there was no real plan of doing this global thing. It was, how can we help? And uh, we, I was fortunate that I was the president of the Asia-Pacific area, so we just started talking to people. We've got a pretty strong uh, research name here across the Asia-Pacific and and more widely. So we just started reaching out to people we knew by WhatsApp, by emails, and saying, hey, listen, do you want to, we can try and help you. Do you want to bring it together? Because you can use your own data for your own hospital, but if you join it into the bigger pie, you you get the value of the, the world working with you. You get people to talk to. We don't know what we're doing. So there was no, there was no fantastic plan. It's just... It started and then it just gathered steam and that happened because there was an unmet need. People needed a place to talk safely. 
Um, and then we saw that the power of coming together always works better than the power of working individually. So I don't think we did anything special. I think what we did was saw a place that we could help and then tried our best to help. How did you hook up? Was this through Zoom or Teams or how were you getting together? Initially it was texts, WhatsApps, emails and then said, listen, you know, it it just became overwhelming. It became this deluge of hundreds of texts and some of them were really sad. You know, people just saying, I haven't been home for a week. Um, my, my kids are um, not allowed into school. They've actually bolted our doors shut. Some of the places in Wuhan were actually um, welding bolts onto the doors. So we couldn't answer them and we said, look, let's just bring this together. And I think the first, thinking back, I think probably the first call we had maybe about 12 or 15 people on it. And we said, you know, are you getting hit? It looks like it's going to move quickly. All of the things we know now. But we didn't know. Um, and internet, you know, we talk about the... Um, Spanish flu, 1918. Yes, it was a very virulent virus, but people didn't fly across the world every week. You know, so suddenly this thing just moved at an incredible pace and there was palpable fear. So it was within, you know, the first week we had maybe 12 or 15 people on the call and then suddenly it was 50, then suddenly it was 100, then 150, then 200. I think our peak call was about 250 global centres, many of whom I'd never met, many of whom none of us knew, but the word just went out of... Hey, we're all coming together because the ICU is the is the the pointy end of the stick. We've got no one else that we can refer on to. Once the patient with COVID or whatever comes to ICU, there's no one else you can pass it on to. There's no one that goes sicker. So people just needed a chance to um, debrief. I think was an important part to ask questions to find out from the people. Again, they saw this wave coming towards it went sequentially from country then to the next country then to the next country, and they could see it coming. And they're looking at a wave coming at them that has destroyed the, the, the country before them. So they wanted to be ready for, to, so they could give their patients the best. And journals, these things are too slow. You know, um, the, the, the best way to get on this was to jump on a call and listen to someone that had just been smashed by their wave. What did you do? What worked? What didn't work? What would you do differently the next time? So that's how it worked. You were able to connect legends in their field with some hospitals that didn't have access to people who were, I guess, so recognised for what they've done. Can you tell us about one of those examples where you're able to connect one of the legends of the field with a hospital? Yeah, look, I mean, it was such a, what I'd say as a Glaswegian, was it was such a socialist event. Um, we would ask, we would everyone was welcome. So you didn't have to get, you know, there was no secret passcode or Mason's handshake. Everyone could join and everyone could speak. So we would normally have a couple of the countries talk. And again, this is the one of the lovely things about medics, that the politicians would carry on the pork chops, but the medics would quite happily discuss and share their experience and their ideas. We had Wuhan and New York on the same call, both presenting their data, which is great. Wouldn't happen anywhere else. So that made me very proud still to be a medic and to... to help in a little way um, but then at the end of the call particularly at the start we'd have we'd ask for regions just to call out so we'd have a regional lead in the emirates and we got a saudi female doctor which you know I, I wanted to i wanted to challenge some of the norms so putting a lady doctor in saudi in charge of all the men doctors in the emirates that challenged quite a few people and um, but it was great we saw we created young leaders from medical students and junior doctors but also we gave 
young doctors unbridled access to the best in the field. And I think the, the one you're talking about was a brilliant Dr. True in Vietnam who had a patient who had a, a problem on the artificial lung of ECMO. And uh, ECMO is an incredibly expensive uh, technology. It's not um, frequently used in Vietnam. But our team were doing a great job with actually a Scottish patient. Uh, and she had asked me on the call with 200 odd others, they said, Professor Fraser, can you assist us in what we should do next? And I said, absolutely, delightfully true, whatever you want, we'll, we'll, our team here in Brisbane will do, but can I just call out Dr. Bartlett, are you on the call? So Bob Bartlett is a, is a crusty 87-year-old legend of medicine. He basically invented most of cardiopulmonary bypass. So every bypass operation that happens across the world when you get your your coronary grafts done or your valves done has got Bob's inventions on it. And he also totally invented this thing called ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is the technique whereby if your lungs become so stiff with COVID, and it's very, very common, um, then we put you on an artificial lungs, we rest your lungs. So imagine there's a broken leg. So when you break your leg, you put it in plaster of Paris and you just rest it. When their lungs are really, really broken, we have to rest it, but you can't stop breathing. So you put uh, some plumbing in the leg, a, a, a pipe the size of a garden hose into one side of your leg and one side of the other into the veins, and the blood is drained out into a, an artificial lung, and it pumps the blood round. Oxygen goes in, carbon dioxide goes out, and the patient gets enough oxygenation. They survive, and it's been very, very effective in a lot of cases in ECMO. The problem is you have to put um, blood thinner in your blood in the same way uh, any blood that comes in contact with a, a non-human uh, surface will clot. Same way when you cut yourself shaving, it'll eventually stop bleeding. So it, the blood thinners can cause problems, and this patient had a clotting problem that was going to kill him, and they didn't, they couldn't quite work out what to do next. And I asked, this, Dr. Bartlett, are you on the call? Yes, John, I'm on the call. I said, look, I, I could assist too, but um, I'm just a child uh, to the master. Or, you know, the Mickey Mouse cartoon Fantasia, I was the apprentice mucking around at the back and he, he was, the, uh, he was the, the wizard. And he said, yeah, I'd be honoured to be able to help my colleagues in Vietnam. And, uh, and I just said, right, swap emails, swap Zooms. So True had three of the senior most people, the president of the ECMO Society, the guy that invented it and the lady... Heidi Dalton, that's probably the most experienced in clotting research in this, help her on a daily basis. Uh, and again, this is one of the things you become proud to be a medic. There was no discussion of, I'll charge you. It was, of course, find a time that we're both awake, come on the call, or we'll talk through things. And uh, True's team did a great job in their own fair power to them, but to have the other people just to be able to say, of course, we'll help. And that fella got better, got off ECMO, and is back home in sunny Glasgow, probably wishing he was back in Vietnam. Because <laughs> I think it was minus five this morning. <laughs> and he was a pilot, was that right? He was one of these people whose job took them into being uh, vulnerable to the disease. Yep, yeah, but I think he was British Airways pilot. At the start, they told me he was a Celtic fan, uh, and I'm a Celtic fan, so I was very, very keen to help. And it was only once we got the breathing tube out, we found he was a motherwolf fan. So <laughs> uh, yeah, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> See... You help everyone. It doesn't matter the background. You also had some feedback from Spain. You dealt with so many countries, you saw so much. But Spain, some doctors there gave you an insight into what it meant to them to be part of this group. Yeah, I think, I mean, just to go back, we were talking about this the other day, to go back, we were all still doing our normal jobs. 
Uh, in our normal jobs, not just ICU, we've got a big research group, we've got a transplant on the table, I've got five kids. Um, so life's pretty blooming busy at the best of times. And then along comes this pandemic to come and just wreck everything. So we had to do a normal work, we had to see the patients, normally we had to do the papers and the studies and meet the new scientists, etc. So we were going at 120% the whole way through, bang, pandemic. Now we could ignore it, because it wasn't really affecting Australia, or we could try and help, we decided to help. But we were writing, when we were doing these Zoom calls, and again it started with 12 or 15 of us, and it was just, how you doing, you alright? And then it became bigger, and it suddenly became like, as Jackie said, it became like a production. It was like, the you know... 9pm on a Thursday night and 9am having been up for 36 hours. The curtain rose and we were meant to have this presentation and we were getting slides from Rwanda and, you know, Cambodia and there was their internet wasn't working but we had a 15 minute scheduled for them so uh, the production was a lot less smooth than this. But we were writing slides as we were actually still <laughs> still um, online and it, it's just and then we had to, we'd finish at half 10 or 11 we might be on call, we'd have to go back in the hospital, we'd do the same again at 9 in the morning, having done the ward round at 7, 7.30. I was just going at such a tremendous pace every week, bum, 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 bum. Uh, so we've actually talked about it. Most of us don't actually remember the first four or five months of it. <laughs> because again, 54 countries, everyone wanted to talk to the boss, the, the guy in charge, at least once or twice. Well, that's 54 times in 24 hours, so... You were getting to bed at two or three and getting up at five or six to try and at least bring these people in and explain, listen, this will help you, but you'll help us as well as what's happening now in Queensland. Um, so, and, and it was interesting, you know, a week or two ago, Jordi uh, Rivera, one of the really big Spanish ECMO leaders, just unsolicited said, sent an email, he said, I don't think you realise how big a deal it was at the kickoff. We were scared, you know, we just saw this wave coming at us. We had no idea what was coming. And you gave us a space to listen to the people that had already seen it, to hear what was likely to happen, to hear how many ventilators we might need, how much oxygen we might need. We need all these things, but you gave us a space to sit with our comrades and our colleagues that we knew and trusted and just be able to speak openly in what I called a cathartic confessional. And he said, I don't think you realise the science, the database, the dashboard, the paper's great. But in our darkest hour, you gave us a community that we could feel comfortable and be honest and see, okay, we're not going to see. So just a, a, a massive thank you. We know how much time and effort it must have been just to try and coordinate that. Um, and, uh, you know, for, here in Spain, we all looked forward to that nine o'clock call. We go past hospitals, most people drive past hospitals and no great work goes on in there, but we all hope we don't have to go in there ourselves. This whole pandemic, I think, has brought together the worlds of medicine and non-medicine in a way it's never done before. You've mentioned that words like, um, you know, PCR or terms like PCR get thrown around more than they ever used to. mRNA is part of news broadcasts quite regularly. What's it been like trying to bridge that gap between uh, the the world of medicine and non-medicine, trying to educate people in terms of what this virus has been like and what it can become? How difficult has that been? Look, that's a fantastic point. Um, uh, Einstein said, if you, can't things ex- if you can't explain things simply enough, then you don't understand it well enough. I think as an intensive care clinician, I unfortunately have to break bad news to people quite a lot of the time. Sometimes good news too, but that's always easier. I think... Everyone, each person deserves the same 
uh, information about their relative. But there'll be different educational levels that you're talking to. So you can tell, you can give them the exact same information, it's just saying it in different words. Uh, so that's part of our job. I think as a, as a scientific and medical community, we've kind of, we're very busy, uh, particularly in the ICU and the research kind of thing. So we're kind of busy, you just go, well, yeah, whatever, if they want to follow that, that's great. We've never gone out and solicited media and things like this because we're just busy doing the work. So I think um, to get the story across has been really, really important because this is about society can save probably more lives than we will. You know, it's the masks, it's the social distances, it's going out and vaccinated yourself. So if we don't get the story out to people, they will come to more harm. And I guess we have to take that as responsibility. It might not be very sexy as a researcher doing transplant saying wear a mask, but it's really effective. It's the same as clean water. You know, the man or woman who developed clean water has probably saved more lives than any doctor ever will. So I think we have realised that getting the story to the population is the key. And I think one of the things that um, frustrates me tremendously, whilst social media is great and it democratises everything, the abuse of social media and the rubbish that's put out there by people that know it's rubbish and that are going to cause harm to people that are perhaps not as well educated. Because if you look at you know, all the crazies that um, put the anti-vaccination stuff out, um, you know, companies and things like this, they have a responsibility and they know they're causing harm and yet they still put this stuff out there and people that are not as well educated will be, will come to harm because of it. So, again, we write in medical journals, we maybe get in the news every now and again, but I don't put things on Facebook, I don't have time nor do I have an interest, but perhaps we have to think like this, if we have to fight disinformation, we probably need to fight metal with metal, I need to go on to that um, area or that um, medium to get the story across so that people at least get the right information before they make their own decision. So what have been your sort of thoughts on, you know, a vaccination rate that in Queensland's nudging nearly 90% for first uh, dose? What's been your, what was your expectation before it in terms of how challenging that might be and your thoughts now as it moves up to that sort of percentage? So Queensland started slow, and it started slow because we haven't seen the disease. I mean, I don't know how many people you know that became acutely sick from COVID. I haven't seen one intensive care patient because our public health people did a great job. Um, people will do things once they know it's risky to them. Um, you saw it in Melbourne, they, they get locked down after lockdown, and in the last lockdown, their vaccination rate went up phew, through the roof because this was impacting them. Here in beautiful sunny Queensland, our impact was almost zero. We watched it in the news. I mean, oh, that's terrible. Ah, oh, Victoria's having it tough. No, oh, you know, New South Wales is having it tough, but we haven't had it tough. Um, I think we've done incredibly well now. We are slow uptakers. But again, we're not that slow. The UK has got a 68% vaccination rate and they've lost thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, they're... Christmas looks like it's going to be cancelled in Scotland. Hogmanay, no drinking in Hogmanay. That's that's how serious is this this uh, pandemic is getting. So I think it's great that we're getting there. On oh, all credit again to to the vaccination centres, we could have got there quicker. I think you know, having it just in GPs or in hospitals. Why not use Bunnings? Why not use the, the NRL? Uh, you know, Stadia. 
get to the people, take it to the people. Don't don't lock it behind hospital doors. Take it to the community. That's where people like the Sandinistas did incredibly well in Nicaragua, taking vaccination out to the people, using the, the grandmothers. So use the people. Um, people are generally good. And I think what we've seen now is that even without much of a... Uh, uh, a clinical load of, of COVID here, we are getting it. We understand that if you want a Queensland summer holiday, if you want to go to the beach, if you want to go and get your prawns and sit outside, this will protect you. Um, but it's sad, our next door neighbours, Papua New Guinea's uh, vaccination rate is 4%. Now, initially that was because they didn't have vaccine and there wasn't enough vaccine equity. But now it's because of misinformation. And there's been, uh, there was a health minister the other day who did a talk in one of the languages where he said, get back, and he said, but they then dubbed it, someone dubbed it with one of the pidgin languages where it said how dangerous vaccination it was done. So this is malevolent misinformation. Um, uh, South African vaccination rates are, you know, in the, on some of Bulgaria, I think it's 34 and 36%. So um, we need to get the information out there. We need to get it in a way that's palatable to Joe public. How are you keeping up now with COVID critical? With we we mentioned those terms that become everyday terms. Mm. Omicron's now an everyday term. You can drop it in a conversation, and yep. people know what you're talking about. How are you going with those variants that we read and hear so much about in your discussions that you have with your group? It looks fascinating again by creating this network. Um, I've got access to, to people a thousand times brighter than I. I was chatting to. South Africa yesterday afternoon at six this morning to find out what they're getting from Omicron. Um, it was you know we it was first seen in Gauteng, an area that I've done some work when I was a med student in, in the anti-apartheid movement, uh, and it's incredibly densely populated. So they're getting the the infectivity seems to be probably five times uh, that of uh, Delta. Uh, currently, there's not anywhere near the number of people going into the intensive care. And what, what um, Dave Thompson, this great doctor from Great Shore that's been working with us throughout the last year and a half, explained was there's there's many less deaths, but it's, it's, it's rampant. They reckon there'll be a million cases of Omicron in the UK within a week. But they're not as sick. And one of the ways he characterised it was, Gautung normally uses about, uh, I think it was one tonne of oxygen per week prior to covid so it was one tonne per week of oxygen prior to COVID. When Delta variant kicked off, it was 7.4 tonnes. So all those people needed additional oxygen. All of them need either ventilated or more, lots of oxygen. And with the Omicron variant, they're using 1.3 tonnes. So it's a bit more than, than average times, but it's nowhere close to what they're seeing with Delta. Now, will that be the same? You know, South Africa is a warm country um, and the antibody rate of people because the disease went through, it was 74%. Will that be the same in the UK? Don't know. Will it be the same here? So it looks as though, um, and I got data this morning at 7, it looks as though the vaccinations are still useful, but not quite as useful. So they've seen the vaccine efficacy was 94% for Delta, and it's about 73 I think, for Omicron. Part of it may be because the change in the particle and the spike protein is different, but part of it may also be those people that got vaccinated maybe got vaccinated six or seven months ago when the wave first went through. So I think the key probably is to get the booster dose um, and we'll see, will the booster dose bring us up to that 93%? But it's still effective and 100% is your best uh, chance of not getting sick. 
You had to try to lighten the load, as you mentioned, for ICU clinicians who were already snowed under. But one of those things that you had was so many data points and a lack of time to record them. So you began to think differently. And at one stage, you even sought the help of Alexa through Amazon. What do you remember about that? Yeah, look, we, we tried to get Alexa involved. Uh, we spoke to Amazon Web Service. So again, this is um, needs must. Um, and we had all these amazing people and getting smashed in these countries and their families being sick and them not getting to bed. And they said, look, we want to gather the data for you, but it's taken us forever. It's 350 data points per day. You've got to write down. So um, Amazon Web Service, were, we, we went to them and said, is there any way we can actually talk to a device and it can just transcribe on the, on the device. So we did several months work with them. They were very good. So we called Alexa Bruce uh, because it was an Australian. So it's, hi, Bruce. Uh, and we talked to Alexa to get the data. The problem was intensives move at such a pace that Alexa couldn't keep up, not even just with a Scottish accent, but even a polite, polite Michael Crutcher accent. Um, and it just couldn't keep up. We learned a lot from it though, and you know, I guess it's version 1.0. So at the moment we're working with Japanese colleagues to try and see, can you use your iPhone just to photograph and use optical character recognition? So, you know, I think it was Churchill said, never waste a good crisis. You know, we have to come out of this better. That's what I'd like to see. We've been smashed, but things that we've seen are, medics can be very type A, can be very, very possessive of their data and it's their publications. And that went away in the first six months of last year. That went away. It was absolutely all shoulders to the wheel. I thought that was brilliant. The second thing that happens is people think sharper, right? You know, medics can be Luddites and we can, oh, well, we've always done it this way. Suddenly this thing was, you know, changing. The, the people from Oxford that um, showed the steroids worked. Um, outstanding work done in two or three months. The vaccination... Um, the, the Pfizer vaccination between the day they signed it in March of 2020 till November when it was actually being given out was 223 days normally to develop a vaccine for a new disease like hepatitis B took 20 years we still don't have a vaccine for HIV but again with the mRNA work that the virologists and the vaccine scientists are doing it may be that we may get an HIV vaccine soon you know so uh, I'm I'm you know, it's been a terrible time, not so much for us here in Queensland, though sadly we have lost some people, but the opportunity for us to re-examine how we work together, how we work as a team, how we put the patient first and the eye last, and how we develop new technologies. So Amazon Web Service was great. The next technique from our Japanese colleagues working with IBM, who helped us make the first dashboard, was outstanding. Again, they, we, we even got lawyers to do work for us for nothing. You know, that doesn't ever happen. But when you get a lawyer to work for nothing, you know that this is a serious difference. So we, we can, we, we should get some good out of a pandemic. Um, and and that, I guess that's my glass half full kind of attitude. And to have all these things, all these data points, sort of this discussion around the, around the world, it, it doesn't come without some sort of cost. How have you managed to get funding to keep this happening at a time when you've got so many other things you know, in your professional lives and beyond. Yep. Um, again, particularly at the start, we had zip. We had we were all doing 120% of our normal job, so there was no fat in the system. Um, we went to Michael Hornby at the Common Good here at Prince Charles, and Michael's always been brilliant to us. And this was really before it kicked off, and I said, this thing is going to kick off. 
um, we think we've got to lend a hand. And he said, oh, but we don't have the disease here. And I said, no, it'll come. And regardless, we have to help our, our mates. And Michael said too, not only did he start doing fundraising, he also said, what do you need? I said, well, I need some administration staff, some comms people. And he actually just gave us his own staff. So he pressed pause in his own um, uh, foundation for a while, gave us his staff, which allowed us to start straight away. Uh, we put uh, requests out through the foundation. And one of my very well-heeled colleagues um, that doesn't work hard enough, I phoned him in the morning. I remember I was getting kids ready for school and I was making a coffee and I thought, I, this is going to fall over unless I get staff. So I've got a nice coffee machine, so I pressed the one button that I press and I texted him and said, hey, can you chat? And uh, he phoned and he said, yeah, you can't. He's a farmer. Yeah, good. I said, this thing's going to kick off. Right. I said, we're going to try and create this thing to work with the four or five countries. It might even become eight, 55 countries. I said, I need I need help. I need to create a team. We need this, this, and this. How much do you need? I said, uh, I'm, and I'm not financially very good. I said, well, 100,000. And, you know, the, the coffee beans were grinding at this stage. He goes, what are you using it for? I said, I'm going to employ this person to do this, that, and the other. The coffee beans stopped grinding. The milk started pouring. He goes, all right. Get home, we'd call me in the morning. So, yeah, anything else? Nope, that's it, thank you. And before the coffee was finished, this fellow, well-heeled, but, uh, you know. So Queensland's created this thing, Michael Hornby and the foundation, the teamwork we've got here, the statisticians. We created this hub where the world could come together, and I'm very proud of that. So that's the art of audience engagement right there, when you can do that over a coffee. Mm, just before I made the coffee, I should have made two coffees and see if I could get $200,000. <laughs> You've mentioned that you haven't treated anyone yet with COVID, but obviously borders reopen in Queensland and the expectations are that we'll see a lot more of COVID. How are you prepared for that as a clinician and your fellow clinicians and the teams you work in? What's your attitude towards what's coming? Um. Again, the intensive care community communi community communicate well, uh, both in Australia and through our COVID critical. Um, the amount of our understanding now compared to 18 months ago is vastly improved. There are treatments for people that are sick. There's vaccinations to stop you getting sick. There's protocols that we've helped create to help you how to ventilate, how to put you on ECMO, who's going to get strokes. So we are so well armed with information and even better, excuse the pun, well armed with vaccinations in our arm, um, that we will get hit, there will be a wave. Uh, the higher we can get that double vaccination rate up, the better, um, and it'll protect us and it'll protect our loved ones, and also it'll protect the health service. What we've seen in the UK was they get so smashed that everything electively stopped. So if you had bowel cancer, you couldn't get your operation because the ICU bed was full of someone with COVID. And if you had cardiac disease and your, your coronary artery was about to close off, you couldn't get the operation. There was no bed to put you in. So the, so this is why protecting this the service through vaccination will keep those ICU beds and allow you know whoever to have their operations. The UK reckon they're 10 years behind in elective operations now because there was just nothing going on. Again, there's discussion in different parts of Australia where the, whether the press, South Africa was pressing pause on elective operating again. It was it South Africa or the UK. Um, so uh, the, the rest of the world progresses, and that's two years where people haven't been able to get their... You know, we've seen a lot of more people coming forward now with 
colon cancers because they couldn't go to hospital for the normal colonoscopies and things. So the rest of the world hasn't stopped. It's just kind of been pressed. So the better we can get back to normal life, the better all those other things that can cause harm and pain we can deal with. Well, John, we've really appreciated having you as our guest today on the Source podcast. Thanks for your time, not just today, but for all the time that uh, all clinicians, researchers, scientists have put in over these last two years. It's been a time, I think, where people are extremely appreciative of the work that has been done and continues to be done. Professor John Fraser, thank you. Thank you.